Yeah, I want to look first into Ephesians chapter 1. The end of Ephesians chapter 1. Mitch said, I just preached the first 14 verses. Uh, so could you stay away from those? I said, I think I can do that. Uh, before we get there, too, and as we're turning there, I was thinking a lot about um, some things as I was reading through Ephesians 1 and studying through it this week. Ephesians 1 and the entire Bible, for that matter, um, to understand what's going on in the Bible, it's so important for us to understand the first three chapters of the Bible. To understand the creation story and the story of the fall. Because it's it, it's the answer to that fall that Jesus comes as the climax. It is the, the redemption of man, of God's creation. Um, and so, as we look into this, we're going to look later and just see some parallels. So there's a few things that are going to cue us in that... By the time we get to our text, which is Ephesians 1.18 and following, this glorious, exalted prayer of Paul, that I think it's going to become clear as we look through some things that the creation and fall story is in the forefront of Paul's mind, that this is what he has got kind of consuming him as he talks about these things. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to just think for a minute. I think it's easy when we think about sin. We think about the nature of sin and how we talk about sin as Christians. And it's really easy for us to understand sin, and rightfully so, as transgression. We've crossed over a line, we've broken God's holy law, and sin is transgression. And transgression, of course, comes with punishment. But even more than that, sin is a great tragedy. Sin is a devastating tragedy. And I hope we're going to see that as we look into Genesis 1 a little bit this morning. We look in then to Ephesians and some of these creation themes. But when mankind falls and we sin, it's an affront against a holy God, but it is also an absolute tragedy for mankind. And if you think about it, understanding the, the creative purpose of God for mankind. You know what I need to do as I'm doing this? I just need to set my timer. There's no clocks in here. And if I don't give myself some sort of rein it in, then we'll be in trouble. There we go. Okay. When we think about sin and tragedy and that sort of motif, if if you think about somebody, you know a child growing up, and they're one of those kids, right, just full of potential, full of life, and there's the world before them. They're intelligent or whatever else it may be, and they're outgoing, and people like them, and you look at that child, and you think there's just a world of potential in there. The potential for them to be a force for good is amazing. And then when a child like that falls away, ruins their life, gets caught up in drugs or whatever else it may be, it could be a thousand different things, there is that sense of, ah, oh, it's such a tragedy. And, and, but then I think we can also look at somebody else who maybe didn't have some of those qualities or other things weren't going on. It doesn't seem to affect us as much. And part of the reason is, is that the greater the potential of something is, the, gr the greater the potential somebody has, the harder it is when they fall from that potential. It's just hard to deal with. And so when we think about sin, and we're going to look at this in just a minute, the fall of man into sin is such a great tragedy, and I think we can lose sight of that. We, we live in a world where all we know is the sinfulness of man. We weren't here before Genesis 3. We haven't experienced the garden 
And, and so then all we have are the depictions of the Bible, and of course a great hope in the gospel for what it will be, but I think it's oftentimes easy for us to lose sight of just how great a tragedy it is that mankind fell. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. Actually, let's do this. Let's read up in verse 15. We'll start there. It's this beautiful prayer of Paul. Paul says, For this reason, Ephesians 1, verse 15, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And here we go. What does Paul envision? How will that happen? Verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know. Here's this three-part thing that Paul would like us to know. One, what is the hope to which he has called you? Two, and this one always blows my mind. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Talk about that. Three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he says this, this power toward us is in accordance with something. According to the working of his great might, God's great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now there's a lot there. We're not going to be able to focus on all of it. What I wanted to do is I wanted to look at this three, the three parts of Paul's prayer. Because this is something that Paul says, I really want the church to understand this. The hope to which we have been called as Christians. Paul says it's going to be critical for the Christian life that we know what that hope is, that we understand it. The second one is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now let me just pause for a minute for an early moment of application. Some of us just haven't felt this way in a while. We felt down. We felt in despair. Sometimes we feel like we keep failing or this or that. And we lose sight of the fact that in Christ... We are to God a glorious inheritance. Now, God would not glory in an inheritance unless it was worthy of that glory. And we're going to see that we can be worthy of that kind of glory in God saying that there is a wealth of richness to Him inheriting us in and through Jesus alone. But in Jesus, we need to take a minute to just feel that. Like in Jesus, because of what He's done, each one of us, if we're following Jesus, if we know Jesus, are a part of a vastly rich, glorious inheritance that God will receive and glory in and count valuable and wonderful. And then the third thing that we want to look at is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, why think so much about creation? Why have us read from Genesis 1? As we get down to the end of this, as we look at verse 20, this power, it says that God worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. 
Now that's a quote from Psalm 110. And we can look at Psalm 110 real quick. Psalm 110 is, I want to say, Brian, you're in seminary, you could probably fact check me on this one, but I think it might be the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Does that sound about right? It's one of them. It's, yeah, it's quoted all over the place. It might be the number one most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But here's what Psalm 110 says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is what Paul's quoting there in the book of Ephesians. Until I make your enemies your footstool. And then this, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now this is kingly language. This is talking about the king. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who would rule as the true Davidic king, the king over God's people. But let's read as this continues. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is quoted in the book of Hebrews and other places. And we bring this up because what we see here is that as Paul talks about Jesus and his victory and Jesus being raised from the dead and now seated in the heavenly places, he specifically says seated at the right hand of God, quoting this text, which alludes to the fact that Jesus is a king priest. Now this is, this is creation language. We're going to see as we go back into Genesis that this is what God has created mankind for. Now, one of the ways that we know that, and I've got my finger in Ephesians. If you don't, it's okay. I'm going to be there quickly. And then we're going to look at Psalm 8. But I'm back in Ephesians. It says in verse 20 that that he, God, worked. He's talking about this great power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. There's that quote of Psalm 110. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And here, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. Which is a psalm, a quote from Psalm 8. So I want to read that real quick. Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8. If you're not familiar with Psalm 8, and I've just re-familiarized myself with it. It's kind of an amazing psalm for us to think about. So let me begin by reading the first and the last verse of Psalm 8. These are probably familiar words if you've uh, spent any time in the church. If not, they're just glorious words. But listen to this. Verse 1 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The last line of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in in all the earth. When something's bookended like that, you have a beginning and an end that are the same. It, the author is trying to tell us, okay, this is important. This is what I want you to see in this. And so the purpose of Psalm 8 is to get us to see that God is majestic and that the, the majesty and the glory of God's great name is to be spread throughout all the earth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? When the Lord teaches us to pray. And and the first thing he says is we're to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When God creates mankind, 
And he blesses them and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. What does he tell them? Fill the earth. Now this is what's crazy as you think about this. So Psalm 8 is bookended by the idea that the majesty of God's name is to be throughout all of the earth. Now let's read the middle of Psalm 8. Picking up at the the third line of verse 1. You, God, you have set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And here's the the quote, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. If we ask ourselves, how is it that God has determined or decreed? How is it that God is going to, wants to be going about spreading the majesty of his name throughout all of the earth? And the answer is, he has created mankind in his image, that we would bear the image of God, that we would be those who are here to make God known, to be image bearers of God, and that in placing mankind over all of the earth, God would be revealing his glory in and through mankind. It is an immensely glorious calling for mankind. I was reminded of a quote by C.S. Lewis this week. Lewis wrote, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, he's a, a, a Christian author and apologist, from about a generation or two ago, writing from the other side of the pond. And so um, maybe we haven't heard of him. Maybe we have. But Lewis said this. You have never met an ordinary person. And, and then he went on to talk about how, how we have been given immortal souls. And that anybody that you encounter has been created in the image of God. And Lewis then went on to talk about the gravity of the conversations that we have with people because these people are destined either for eternal glory or eternal doom. But but Lewis's point that you have never met an ordinary person struck me. Because think about it. You get in your car to go to work. You walk down the street to go to the store. You look out the window of your living room and you're going to see hundreds of people slide in and out of your view every day. And most of them leave no impression at all with you. They seem like ordinary people living ordinary lives and not too much to get excited about. And Lewis would say, I beg to differ. Mankind was created with a glorious calling. As we turn back to Genesis 1, we want to look at just a little bit of that to kind of help set the stage just a little bit. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but I would encourage each of us to, as best you can, try to make yourself really familiar with the first three chapters of the Bible. Because if you want to understand the storyline of what's coming after that, then the glory of God and creation and this high and exalted calling that he gave mankind, the height from which we fell and the depths of our fall, set the stage for everything else that's going to come after it, and specifically for the work of our Lord Jesus. But here, let's look. I got thrown off. It's on page two in my Bible. Bigger letters. 
So we look at verse 26 in chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Which, just right off the bat, I mean, think about that. God has created and God has created many things and it's been good. And what God is doing is this good creation. But when he creates man, there is a distinct dignity given to man. And it's that man would be created in such a way as to bear the divine image. You you can't make this stuff up in sci-fi movies. Could you imagine watching a movie and and the whole point of the movie is that there would be this group of people and, and they're looking and they're struggling and everything that they're doing is because they realize there's something else out there. What is it? There has to be this, this all-knowing, all-powerful mind or person that has created all of this. And you can imagine like space shuttles going through space and all of these things just to find out who it is, to get to know them. And God says, I've created man for this purpose, to know me, to bear my image. And so what God has created us for, and I wrote here on this first page of my notes, and I thought about saying it or not saying it because... Depending on what some people mean by it, it could get us off, but I'm going to say it, I think. You were created for great things. Great and wonderful and glorious things. And not the way the world will tell you about great things. You were created to bear the image of God. And as we're going to see here, you were created to be priest kings or kingly priests on behalf of God. That's what we see here. Let us create, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion, that is rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here it is affirmed again. So God created man in his own image and then A third time, just in case we didn't get it yet, right? In the image of God, he created him. This is very important to God that we would know this. That we were created in his image. Male and female, he created them. Which, at the time of Moses writing this and in that culture, to give equal dignity and value to male and female was not at all what the cultural norm was. But, but the Bible is making the point that from the very beginning, male, female, it doesn't matter, that to be a human, to be part of mankind is to bear the divine image. And actually, so that we wouldn't think that one was over the other, you don't get the image of God complete in mankind until you have male and female. And we'll see that a little bit in chapter 2. When it's just Adam, God's like, remember everything else to this point has been, it's good, it's good, it's good. And here's Adam alone. It's not good that man will be alone. The fulfillment of the image of God hasn't taken place yet. But verse 28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Here's that word again. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God had created mankind to rule as royalty, as kings and queens over his creation. I was thinking about this for a minute. Most of us have come up in a democracy, and so the idea of royalty is a little foreign to us. And yet, all the while, we're absolutely caught up with it, aren't we? You see on the newsstand, as you buy your groceries, there's always some picture on some magazine about what's going on with the royal family in England. 
And then, not only that, but think about this phenomenon with our kids. It's not just in America, because when we went to get Danny from Bulgaria to bring her home, over there, too, princesses. Every little girl loves the princesses, right? Like, who doesn't want to be a princess or a prince, a king or a queen? Could you imagine that at your disposal are all the resources of a kingdom to bring about and to do the things that you think are important? Do you imagine what we could do with a, a church with that kind of resources? Right? And so, but that's what God has created us to be. And we get so into the day-to-day grind of punching the card and going to work and all of this that it's, I think, really easy to lose sight of. The fact that God has created mankind and not any one specific person, which is how we tend to think, right? Of kings, you have one monarch, one queen, one king, and, and that's it. But God has created that for all of us to partake in that. And it's like, oh, okay. That's pretty awesome. And so then I want to look real quick at chapter 2 and see this idea that God has not only created us to be kings and to rule over his creation, but that he's also created us to be priests. If you look at verse 15 in chapter 2, it says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Work and keep the garden. Those two words... Are used Those same Hebrew words are used explicitly to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple later on. Coupled together like that, they refer to the priesthood. And so one of the things that we're seeing here is that not only was man given to rule over as a king and queens over God's creation, but that we were also to serve as priests. And what does that mean? It means that we were given the great glory and task of not only ruling for God in God's ways according to God's word, but we were given the task of mediating and spreading the presence and glory of God throughout all the world. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Now we're going to see this come to fulfillment, won't we? In Jesus, as he builds up his church as a holy temple in the Lord, where the presence of God dwells through the Holy Spirit. Now, we take some time to build this picture and to focus on this also to help us understand the tragedy of sin. It's easy for me to look at somebody walking down the road, to see somebody with a broken life and just go, ah, or to be sinned against and get angry. And I think that the Bible would first have us be sad over sin, heartbroken over sin, heartbroken over the state of humanity. So now, with that, I want us just to look at a couple parallels, and I've got a few things listed here. We're not going to spend time like looking through all of the verses, but when we think about Ephesians, and we think about the creation story, let's think about the creation story, because many of us know what happened right after creation. That here comes, and the Bible's clear in, in chapter 3, here comes one of the beasts that God created, or animals that God created, Satan. And it says that he was more crafty, you remember this in 3.1, than all of the other animals that God created. And so we see God created mankind to rule over the animals. How? By God's word. God places Adam in a garden and he says, he gives him a command, he gives him his word. Don't eat from this one tree. Like Adam, I have set a buffet of trees and fruit and just amazing stuff before you. But here's my command. You're going to need to not eat from this. Why was that important? Because Adam... And eventually Eve, when they were going to exercise their dominion, they were going to have to do it according to God's word and God's ways so that God's will would be accomplished. But here's what happens. 
God has said, here's what I want to do. I want to place you guys over my creation and specifically over the beasts that I have created on the world, in the world. And you need to do it according to my word. And then the Genesis 3 story tells us this, that the serpent, one of these animals, beasts that God created, came and spoke in alternate words. And so then Adam and Eve are faced with a choice. Are we going to rule and live our lives and structure God's earth around God's word or around the word of the enemy, the serpent? And what did they do? They chose to follow the course of the enemy, to follow after the enemy. And what do we see? We see a great reversal now in creation. We're going to learn this in Ephesians, that it says that those who don't know Jesus are walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, was to rule over the rest of God's creation, rule over the animals and the, the beast, the serpent included, but the serpent came, they didn't heed the word of God, they heeded the word of the serpent, and everything got flipped upside down, and now the serpent is ruling over people. Because when we don't hear and respond to God's word, then God's good creation gets reversed. And this is why we went from life to death. It was a reversal of creation. God created us to have life and to receive it abundantly from him. And now, what we want to see then is just a few ties, and I'm going to run through these fairly quickly, between the creation story and what we see then in the opening chapters, two chapters of Ephesians, we're not gonna, I'm not going to go to all of the verses. You can just listen and then you can check them later. We see first in the creation story that God created the heavens and the earth. We see then that there was a transgression by man, which means there is a need for forgiveness. Because of this sin, this transgression by man, death enters the world and now there is a need to be made alive. We call all of this the fall, the fall of mankind, which tells us that if we have fallen, there is a need to be raised up again. Now, we see, and we just talked about this, that humanity followed the voice or the course of the enemy. Because of this, humanity was divided from each other and from God. You remember the first story we hear after Genesis 3? Genesis chapter 4, two brothers, which should be a close relationship in the biblical worldview, now we tend to think of the closest relationship as husband and wife, but in a biblical worldview it was siblings. That was the closest relationship that you could have was between siblings. And so when a brother kills another brother, that is the closest relationship in that culture being divided as far as it possibly can be through death and the murder by one brother. So humanity is divided from each other and from God, which means that there is a need to be united not only to God, but together again in one new man. <clears throat> we see in the story, the passions of the flesh of mankind, get that's what rules. They saw the food, that it was good to eat. They were also carrying out the desires of the body. They took the food and actually made it. And, and the desires of the mind, which is to say, remember what Eve said? Oh, that will make me wise. That will give me a wise mind. Now, is it, is it good to be wise? Yes, but not in that way. Wisdom should come from above. Wisdom is something to be received by faith through God's grace. Now, next, this means all of this took place. And because of this, mankind became, by nature, children of wrath. 
they were separated from God, enemies with God. That means that there was a need to be changed in our very nature. And then we also see that because of what mankind does, all of creation now suffers a curse and is separated from its God-given purpose, which means that there needs to be a reuniting of all creation to its God-given purpose. Now, as we turn to the book of Ephesians and we think about what's going on there, we're going to see all of these themes from the very opening verses of the book of Ephesians coming to fruition. And I want us to hopefully see that this is at the forefront of Paul's mind. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing where in the heavenly places even as he chose us before him in the foundation, before the foundation of the world. Heaven, world, heaven and earth. There is that creation theme there going on. If you were to scroll down to verse 7, you would see that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. For the trespass and the need for forgiveness that we saw. Verses 8 and 9 are going to talk about the wisdom and the purpose of God which is in stark contradiction to the wisdom and the purpose of the enemy that we see in the creation story. In verse 10, we hear this, um, that God has a plan for the fullness of time. That word plan, is, it's a hard word to actually translate. It's an interesting word. But it speaks of this unique management or government, which brings back to mind the idea of ruling and governing over God's creation. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we read that mankind is dead in their transgressions and sins. In verses 2 and 3, it's because we're now following the course of the enemy. But then in verses 5 and 6, there's a shift. There's the but God that comes, the but God of the gospel. All of these things that are going on, but then something happens. We are given life from death and raised up from a fallen position. This is the language that Paul is using. And then in verses 11 through 22, as Paul depicts this glorious truth of Jews and Gentiles, the most radically divided group that you could imagine, being united together in one new man. Humanity and all of the brokenness being united together. And then we're going to look here uh, with a little bit of time that we have left on how that takes place through Jesus and what Paul would have us to understand about that. So I want to look now at verse 18, at this prayer of Paul. Paul says that he is, he's praying in verse 17 that the Father of glory may give us, the church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you. And friends, this is the hope. He has called us to that. Can you think about that? That we have been created by God to be priest kings or kingly priests of God to exercise dominion and rule over God's earth according to God's word and God's will and for God's glory. But he calls each one of you to be royalty. And I think sometimes that's so hard for us to imagine, right? Like This is what I love about the church. We're just a bunch of, Paul says, really a bunch of nobodies who God has saved by grace. But don't let who you were Forge and shape the identity of who you are in Christ. Because when we do that, the ultimate sadness and detriment of that is that it's, it's lowering, devaluing who Jesus is. Because when you come to faith in Jesus, you're united to Jesus. 
You no longer have a separate identity as a sinner and a rebel against God, but now you have been, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus by faith, which means that you are his body. And so then what's true of Jesus, what can be declared of Jesus, God declares of you. And so that when we, when we have a diminished view of all that God is doing for us, we can unknowingly, unwittingly begin to bring Jesus down lower and lower. And the whole purpose of the Bible is that we would glorify God by making much of Jesus. Which means, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you have a glorious calling. You have been called to rule over God's creation on his behalf. Why? Because you have been united by faith into the true King, Jesus. And so we get to rule and reign with Jesus. Now what does that look like for us practically? And we'll talk about the priestly elements in just a minute. But Because we know, just because we're Christians, it's not like, oh yeah, then you guys are going to be president or run the state governments and all of this. No, no, the kingdom of God works itself out in the family of God. We, as God's people, as the church, we begin to structure our life around kingdom principles. This is why the world will know that the Father sent the Son, John 17, the high priestly prayer, by the the unity that we have, the way that we love one another is a testimony to the reality of Jesus. And so we begin to structure our lives. We govern our family. We govern the church based on God's word. And we show the world by virtue of our joy and the freedom that we have in Jesus just how good and glorious the kingdom of God is. And so this is our high and glorious calling that we would do these things. Now, the second part we saw in creation of that calling was not just the kingly rule, but the priestly mediation of the presence and glory of God. Just take a minute right now and just look around the room. Look at each other. Each person in here who knows and is following Jesus is a part of the temple of God and the Spirit of God himself dwells in us. Creator God Almighty here right now, working in power. He has raised each one of us from death to life and one day will ultimately resurrect and raise these bodies to an incorruptible state based on the incorruptible nature of our Savior. This is who we are. And we get to live our lives to mediate, to help people see that glory. We get to live our lives to spread that glory. This is why we are to make disciples of all the nations. Because it is the fulfillment and climax of God's created purpose through humanity. Now what blew my mind this week was Ephesians chapter 1 talks about This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world, that he predestined this, that he determined this, that this would happen. That that before man ever fell, God knew that the way that we would ultimately accomplish this would be through his son, Jesus. Jesus is never an afterthought. There is plan A and plan A, and that's it. And it's always been Jesus. And this is good news for us. Because... Think about that moment when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And it's like, oh my goodness, things are out of control. And, and remember, creation moves from chaos. The earth was formless, right, and void. Chaos, the chaotic waters and darkness. And God moves it to order. And then we have the fall and we're moving back to chaos. And in that moment, when it seems most chaotic, 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, no, God knew the whole time. His plan was always to accomplish this through a deliverer king, his eternal son Jesus. And, and humanity is created in the image and likeness of God and the eternal plan of God has always been that his eternal image, Jesus, would take on flesh. And that would be the foundation of humanity. And the, the good news about that is there will be moments in your life and my life that just seem like it is sliding into utter chaos. And here's the good news. God knows. He has a plan. He's working all things out for your good and his glory through the reigning King Jesus. And you've been united to him. And nothing catches God off guard. That's good news. And the fact that Paul's using all of this creation language in Ephesians 1, and he's saying, all of this has been my plan so that I would ultimately accomplish this through Jesus as the head, which accomplishes what? It accomplishes all the glory going to God. But it also elevates us into a, a mind-blowing status of what we will have later. Because Jesus takes to himself... All of the brokenness of this world. He takes our death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, that, that eternal separation from God, and he bears it for us. And he's placed in the tomb. But here's the kicker. And the author of Hebrews mentions this, that Jesus becomes a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it says in Hebrews, by virtue, not of a bloodline, but the power of an indestructible life. Death had no claim on the Savior because the wages of sin is death and yet he was sinless. And so when Jesus bears our sin and he is able to bear, whether it's in three hours or however long we see the wrath of God poured out on him, he is able to bear in a moment of time an eternal wrath because he is an eternal person. It had to be a God-man who did it because God cannot die but there must be death for our sin. And yet, if God's wrath is going to be fully poured out, it must be an eternal wrath because we've sinned against an eternal God. And so you see the necessity of why the church has always confessed that Jesus must be understood as true God and true man. And he does that. He takes our death and he's buried in the tomb, but death had no claim on him. And so on the third day, he's raised from the dead, but he is raised now, not to the former glory, but to a new humanity, a new glory. Jesus becomes the first fruits, the very beginning of God's promised new creation. A new creation in which righteousness will reign, sin will be done away with, and death will be swallowed up in victory. And we get just a little foretaste of that right now when we're born again, made new creatures, partakers of the new creation inside. And we look forward to that coming day when Christ returns and we partake of it fully. And all unrighteousness is wiped out. Loved ones, this is the hope that we're called to. And Paul says, it's going to be really helpful if we understand that. But can you think about how we would live if we could embrace this every day? God has called me to rule and to reign over his creation. And, and that rule and reign and how that works out is exemplified in Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords comes, Mark 10.45 says, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Could you imagine if every single human exercised authority and lordship 
by serving and seeking the good of the other, what would the world look like? And the answer is the new heavens and the new earth. Because that's what it will look like. And all sin will be a thing of the past and there will be no more sorrow and pain. And we will find great joy in serving others. And we're called now to exemplify that. Little bit by little bit in the life of the church as we live together as the family of God on mission together. This is our calling. And this is what God calls us to do. Now, the next thing that Paul says is that he wants us to understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And now with that picture of who God created us to be and what Jesus has done to overcome death on our behalf, can you start to see a little bit of why the church is a glorious inheritance to God? Keeping in mind that God also can see us, not as we are now with all of our spots and wrinkles, but if we were to flip to Ephesians chapter 5, it's going to talk about how Christ has washed us with the water of the word and that he has made us spotless before God without spot or wrinkle. Now I know myself, pretty spotted, pretty wrinkled, pretty tattered, pretty worn down by sin, but the fact that I will be made like unto Christ when he comes back is an absolute guarantee. And this is what we see in that, that, that beautiful chain in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also justified, and so on and so forth. And then it says, and he also glorified, past tense. Has it happened yet? No. Is it a done deal? Absolutely. And we can take it to the bank. And that's how God can see us. And that's why Paul can say, we need to understand, we are a glorious inheritance to God. And that is a beautiful thing. And it has everything to do with Jesus. That he took our death. That he rose from the grave. I mean, who would do that? What kind of a loving Savior in God is that? Who would bear up under the wrath that rightly should have been poured out from him on us for our sake? It's a glorious inheritance. And then it says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now remember when we looked at that in Psalm 110, Jesus was seated up there as a king. This is the, the exaltation of the king and the priest. And so Paul is telling us that as we've been raised from death to new life in Jesus, God is now has this, what are the words he uses here? Immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Who believe so that we can fulfill that calling of what it means to be created in the image of God. To exercise the kingly, priestly rule of God so that we can govern our lives, so that we can govern in the church. And anybody who will give us influence in that loving, Christ-like way of ruling over God's creation and then mediating the presence and glory of God to others. We've been raised up with him. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In other words... Far above the serpent and his minions, which is how these terms, rule, authority, power, and dominion, are often used. Like, Satan, listen. How is God ultimately accomplishing that? Through Jesus Christ and his body, the church. And Jesus will fill all in all through what he is doing in this new humanity we call the church. Loved ones, you have been given a high and glorious calling.
It's majestic, it's wonderful, and it's absolutely dependent on Jesus, which is why we make much of Jesus, we sing about Jesus, we tell others about Jesus, because none of this is possible apart from Jesus. And even in the beginning of the garden when Adam and Eve were sinless, it was always God's plan that Jesus would be the one. And so we make much of Jesus. We pray that God's Spirit allows us to behold more of Jesus so that we can be transformed into the same image of Jesus. And then we just go out into the world and we simply tell people who we are and what's been done for us. Now just think about that, the power of the witness of that. And we need to tell people about sin, that they need to repent. But don't be afraid to tell them that they were created for great things. That as image bearers of God, there is this, this like inside of them, this potential to be far more than they could ever imagine. And that if they would trust in Jesus and receive by faith the forgiveness that Jesus offers and the spirit that is promised, that they could begin to walk in that potential and live in a way that they could never imagine. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for Christ our Savior. And thank you for the the hope to which we have been called. Help us to see more and more the glory of that, Lord, as we see the glory of Jesus who has accomplished it for us. We pray in his name. Amen.